Prince there with his classic I Feel For You. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, uh, we've got a really important story. We're chatting with Nevnis Porofska. She's on the line. She, of course, is the co-convener of the Victorian Pride Lobby. They have co-signed a letter uh, from Pride in protest urging Midsummer to ensure that Victoria Police don't march in uniform at Sunday's Pride March. Nevna, welcome to 3CR. Welcome back. James, always a pleasure to chat with you. Great to have you on board. Nevna, why shouldn't police march in uniform on Sunday? This is a really important conversation and I'm really glad that we have the opportunity to discuss it. And I know, especially in the lobby do, that there's a diversity of opinions amongst our community about whether or not police should in fact march in uniform at Pride events. There are, of course, nuanced issues on both sides of this debate. However, our position we arrived at as we conducted a survey of 1,500 Victorian LGBTIQA plus community members last year and the overwhelming majority said that they do not support police marching at uniform in Pride. That's why the lobby co-signed the letter put out by Pride in Protest and also put out our own statement to the media. What's Midsummer's response been? We have a positive and ongoing relationship with Midsummer, so we made sure we shared our statement with them ahead of that. They, in the media, have said, of course, that there can't be any changes to this year's parade, but they have taken the feedback on board. Obviously, that they've seen that there is community sentiment and feelings on both sides, and this conversation will be continuing on into the future. Why can't they make any changes? At this stage, uh, everything is booked in. Uh, So our understanding is due to everyone who's registered, the COVID registrations, Um, but that's why that police will still be marching in uniform. I couldn't speak on behalf of Midsummer, but that would be a question for them. Are you surprised that police haven't kind of, you know, read the room on this issue and said, okay, there's some distress in the community about this. However, some people support it. Uh, It's a divisive issue. We're not going to march in uniform. We'll march, but it won't be in uniform. Are you surprised Vic Police just haven't come out and done that? I'm particularly more surprised that there hasn't been more of a community conversation around why this is such an important issue. We've had hundreds of comments on our Facebook page, uh, dozens of emails and a few threatening calls to our uh, lobby phone number, I might add, with people incredibly exercised about this issue. This is complicated and it needs to be recognised that if you come from a place of privilege, if you uh, yourself personally welcome the police, that might be fine. But have a think about what it means for people whose loved ones have died in custody. Have a think of people who've experienced homophobic or transphobic systemic violence. That's what's really surprising to me at the moment, James. Well, it is, especially since, you know, Black Lives Matter and deaths in custody have been such huge issues, especially over the last 12 months. I mean, this issue hasn't come from thin air. Not at all. And this is an issue that especially the First Nations community and rainbow LGBTIQA plus First Nations people have been advocating for for decades. This might be a little bit new to some people, but it's certainly something that's been spoken about for a long time, especially in the context of Mardi Gras. And closer to home, this certainly ain't our first rodeo when it comes to 
you know, counter-opinions about whether or not police should be marching in uniform at Pride. Well, that's right. I mean, I covered this issue, you know, 20 years ago and people were divided in the community about it, but also there were plenty of people saying that police should not march in uniform, even when Christine Nixon was commissioner. So it's a it's a it's an issue with a lot of history. It keeps popping up and it, it continues to be unresolved. It's incredibly charged and I think we've arrived at the time where we need broader coordinated community consultation. At the moment we have, you know, individuals putting out statements, individual organizations like the lobby either putting out their own statement or signing on to the letter. But it largely remains divisive and incredibly charged. I would love to see a constructive critique of why community don't feel or some members don't feel comfortable having police there and for Midsummer to hear that and to act upon those recommendations. Because otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, an issue that continues potentially for another 20 years. What's your response to police saying that marching in uniform is a sign of respect? I would ask, a sign of respect for who? There might be some members of the community that see this as progress. For them, it might mean that seeing police marching side by side for them equals progress. But perhaps if we unpack that a little bit and think about who's excluded and who doesn't feel safe when police march in uniform, that's perhaps the question that I'd like to pose to the broader community. And from the feedback that we've received, that's you know quite a lot of responses from the trans and gender diverse community, from migrant community, sex workers, First Nations members of our community, is that there is not a feeling of safety when there is, you know, a swarm of police in uniform. That's right. It's not just an issue about race. It's about the many intersections with our community, within our community. Uh, it sounds like there's been a groundswell of organisations and and people from, you know, various bits of our LGBTIQA plus alphabet who have come out in support of Pride in Protest Letter and also the Vicar Pride Lobby. And we have been hearing that uh a lot of people have been in touch with us to say they support this and they'd like to see something coordinated next year. This letter, I will have to say, did seem a little bit last minute. We would have loved to have had the opportunity to socialise it with some of the broader LGBTIQA plus organisations and the community, you know, more than a week ahead of the march. But that's certainly a lesson for next year. Has this issue damaged uh, Victorian Pride Lobby's relationship with Midsummer in any way? I wouldn't say that it's damaged our relationship. This is certainly uh, something that the lobby has advocated for in the past. We did sign on to the same letter in the Mardi Gras context last year. So it's something that, that we have supported. We would make sure that we were proactive with Midsummer and shared our statement in advance, and we'd love to continue that proactive discussion in a respectful and critiquing manner going into the future. As far as you're aware, have any groups said they're boycotting Pride March on Sunday because police will be marching in uniform? No groups as such, but there's certainly individuals um, and individual members of our community that won't be going to the march and just, frankly, don't feel safe being there. Even though the parades themselves are limited to 30 people because of COVID restrictions, at the midsummer briefing, the police did say there would be a contingent of police around police. So I'm not sure what that message is you know, being sent when that happens. Who are you protecting yourselves from? 
That is quite extraordinary, a contingent of police around police. Um, Yeah, it sounds quite inflammatory, doesn't it? I mean, there's been no suggestion of any retaliation against police in any way. Uh, Do you think that's been a bit of an overreaction? I would think so, unless there is a a credible threat that perhaps Vic Pohl um, has received during that time. The only thing that I've heard of is potential leafletting, and I'm not sure you know, how dramatic that is and whether we need police protection from a bits of pieces of paper. And, of course, Midsummer has issued a statement talking about how they're committed to ensuring safety for all members of, of the community. Uh, clearly, they're very committed to inclusion and uh, they've also made a point of, you know, how they're going to be, you know, working with the lobby and there's a meeting, I understand, that's in place to look at the Pride March in 2022. And kudos to Midsummer. You know, they've done a really good job organising everything, having to move the festival months after. They've even got the sun out for us. Can you believe a 20-degree day when either side is going to be raining in Melbourne? They've been hearing and listening to the community, so I really do have a lot of respect for how they've conducted themselves and look forward to seeing where these conversations take us. Nevin, on another topic, of course, the Victorian budget was released this week. What's the lobby's response to the budget? We've really welcomed the budget. This has been a massive investment in the mental health of our communities and it's particularly a big win uh, for the trans and gender diverse health. So there's been a $21.3 million investment uh, in trans and gender diverse health And that will be going to health and primary medical services like the Monash Health and the Royal Children's Hospital, as well as uh, peer support programs such as Transgender Victoria and Transcend. So it's a massive shift from us from last year, going from, I think it was a couple of million dollars to now a $45 million budget. You must be pleased about the investment in mental health and uh, you must applaud the uh, business levy that's been um, included. I do. Uh, A round of applause on both accounts and also to see other initiatives like the LGBTIQ plus leadership program continue its funding and the LGBTIQA plus organisational grants program. You know, these small grants are the lifeblood of so many of our organisations and they keep them afloat. So it's really important that the government make funding allocations for the smaller organisations and the larger ones. You know, we're so pleased to see that Rainbow Door and Switchboard have got that recurrent funding. That's a huge win for our community. Any gaps in the budget the lobby's concerned about? We have noticed that there hasn't been um, much for the BIPLUS community and for LGB health in general especially in the year when Private Lives 3 and Writing Themselves Thin has come out and we've seen that there is a huge need for community-controlled organisations to be able to have that strong investment in them, both from a funding and resources perspective, because that's where a lot of our company uh, community feel comfortable getting their services from. That's where you receive that affirmation, that safety, and that can also be so important to you seeking help. We've seen from all of this research that it can be a barrier uh, for people going and seeking treatment when there isn't that service available to them in their local community. Last time we chatted, of course, you highlighted the need for equal opportunity reforms here in Victoria. Of course, the government is committed to revamping equal opportunity legislation. Any any uh, idea when we might expect to see that in Parliament? 
I've only heard whispers, James, so I'm just as keen as you are to see that. Of course, now that we've um, had the budget come out, you can almost smell that election fever in the air, even though it's not until November next year. Uh, it's, it's in the air, that feeling, that charged campaigning. So it's something that we'll be looking out for, as it was a commitment from the government to our community. Of course, the lobby's been running on the local government issue and uh, the need for local government to be inclusionary. Uh, how's that campaign going, particularly in relation to the city of Port Phillip? We were so thrilled to see that the City of Port Phillip reversed their decision and have endorsed all five of the Rainbow Pledge. So that took, you know, a bit of work with the local residents, businesses and some lobbying, but that was a great turnaround. And I also think that was an important cornerstone in the Rainbow Local Government campaign because it showed if you do sign a pledge, then there will be consequences if you break it publicly. We will hold you to account and we will lobby to make sure that those uh, positive parts of the pledge go through. And all across Victoria on Ida Hobbit Day, there was a record number of councils that had the flag flying. Um, and this was everywhere from, you know, your Gippslands to your Mildura. So it's not just something that's happening in metropolitan Melbourne, we're really thrilled that the campaign has been reaching rural and regional Victoria. Nevna Sparovska, always great to chat with you on 3CR. Thanks so much for joining me today. A pleasure. Thank you so much, James. Nevna Sparovska there from the Victorian Pride Lobby. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, and here's Crowded House. <laughs> Sinking to the bay, they'll be under the rocks again. 
Add your support during our annual Radiothon and be part of community-powered radio. 3CR Radiothon Fundraiser, June 2021. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon, community-powered radio.
just a dream That was just a dream That's me in the corner That's me in the spotlight Losing my religion Trying to keep up with you And I don't know if I can do it I'm now sad too much I haven't said RM there, losing my religion. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. Well, Reggie Chang is a young queer person from Fostering Connections at the Centre for Excellence in Child and Family Welfare, and I chatted with Reggie this week. Thank you. It's nice to be on here. My journey in RFM care consisted of, um, I think, a lot of like experimenting with like different foster carers and all that kind of stuff. But I think the biggest crucial thing for me was finding a foster carer who was um, like really positive, like a role model for me. Um, and in some ways, someone who pretty much would go out of their way to help me um, do what I needed to do, help me find resources or strive to do something. At the time when I was going through foster care, I wanted to finish my high school um, VCE um, certificate. Um, and my foster carers and the organizations that I was with helped me find like tutoring to help me get through it. Tell us about the experimenting that you did to find that role model. I think um, with with foster carers, um, there was a lot of, like, I, I had a mix of positive and negative experiences finding foster carers who I guess I got along with well enough. Um, there was an experience where um, I remember celebrating my first Christmas with a foster carer in Emerald. Um, they had a beautiful home in this like side street of Emerald. And I, at the time, I've never been to Emerald before. It was one of like, it's like a very nice leafy um, town, I guess. I, I, I wouldn't call it a suburb because I don't think it's exactly a city or anything like that. But, um, you know, I met other people my age um and we i guess it was just a positive experience for my own mental health um at the time to just be in that situation um celebrating my first christmas you know doing all the stuff that i never got to do as a kid because my family never celebrated christmas um i guess the other experiences i've had were more like negative and in terms of like how foster carers may not be fully equipped on how to handle certain situations um there were experiences in my time where at times of my life where i didn't know what i was doing um with 
my life and these foster carers that I had weren't exactly the best role models. Um, but all in all, I've had a good mix of both positive and negative, I'd say. Tell us about the role model that you found, the first role model that you found where you just went, yes, this is it. This is what I need. Yeah. So I, the first role model I found was, um, I'm pretty certain it was at the Emerald Place. Um, they were a, um, a husband and a wife, um, and they had two kids. They had one foster kid, and then there was me. So I was like, I guess there were two foster kids, basically. Um, and they they envisaged like a lifestyle that was very far from my own um, growing up experience. I grew up in a very ethnic um, Chinese-Australian type of background, like with my parents being refugees and all that kind of stuff from the Khmer Rouge War. Um, and I guess, you know, when I was at that place, um, I felt comfortable being myself. I didn't have to hide behind any mask, you know. I think at the time they knew I was queer. Um, they knew I was like not exactly <laughs> what I had I had a lot of stuff to deal with, a lot of trauma to deal with, and still recovering from it. But they were able to help foster that friendship and that sort of rapport with me that helped me to build upon for the next few years coming forward. So foster care, out-of-home care really helped you emerge as a young queer person? Yeah, I'd say so. I think um, I didn't have such a positive experience at home being LGBT, um, being a person of color um, and being LGBT is sometimes an intersectionality that can be quite hard to establish. Um, and I feel like being in that foster home when I was younger in Emerald actually helped. It helped me be myself because I could do what I needed to do. There were other foster carers that I stayed with um, during my time in foster care as well. There was one in Chadston where I stayed at all throughout year 12 VCE and they were really lovely too. Um, and I gave them, they actually gave me the freedom and ability to attend um, like minus 18 dance parties back when I was underage, um, which is really cool. Three Uh, so the journey I've out of home care was actually quite uh, traumatic. Um, I ended up homeless at 18 um, and there were just about like, pretty much a period of two years where I was like in between like share houses, uh, mental health facilities and like youth refuges until I found the right place to stay. Um, but I think, you know, even during that time, I was still active within the LGBT community in terms of you know, being involved as, uh, I think, a crew member for Minus 18 at one stage, as well as, uh, like, working with other organizations like the Create Foundations, which advocates for young people in LFM care. So it sounds like even though you've got incredible resilience from your experiences, both before you went into home care and uh, during it, that the system, when you needed it, still kind of failed you, not the out-of-home care system, but the mental health system as a queer person with all those intersections. I definitely agree. There is a lot of struggle with the mental health system in Victoria. Um, I even contributed to the Royal Commission to Mental Health um, and the Mental Health Facilities. Um, and there were key findings that still, I don't think, have been implemented into our system yet, which is kind of a failure on the government's department's part. Um, but I felt like, you know, I, I like you said before, I'm actually quite resilient. I'm able to pick myself up from a lot of situations. Um, and it, it's it's kind of the idea that, like, I when I left home um, young when I was younger and I left home, 
I decided that at a point of time that I was going to be my own guide, guide my own like navigational compass in my life, I guess, um, that would help steer me to where I want to go. And I feel like having that kind of like emphasis at a young age helped establish the idea that I could become a person that is separate from my parents' identity and from the environment that I grew up in. As a young queer person of colour, what's your main advice to the Royal Commission into Mental Health here in Victoria? My main advice as a young person of colour, as a queer young person of colour, um, to the Mental Health um, Royal Commission was about treating young people with mental illness respectfully. I've had had times when I weren't treated with respect at um, specific uh, uh, mental health facilities in Melbourne. And I think, you know, there comes a time where you realize that sometimes, I guess this is just from my own lived experience and the traumas that I face, sometimes it's easier to tell lies such as, you know, how well you are to get past things. And I don't think that should necessarily be the case for everyone. And I don't think that should be a valid like excuse to help a young person with a debilitating mental illness succeed. As a, as a young queer person uh, who was homeless with mental health issues, it clearly sounds like the system failed you. What was that tipping point where the system kicked in and was able to adequately help you? I think the biggest point was um, while staying in a few share houses in the, I guess, the Mount Waverley area in Melbourne, I connected with a mental health support service called Nimai National. Um, and they provided a like a sort of like a come and go type of um, mental health support. And I connected with a person named Kate there quite a while ago. I still can't remember, I can't believe I still remember their name. But they actually, um, I told them I was homeless when they called up um, a few months after I. I left like the mental health institutions. I told them that I was homeless and I was basically at youth refuges and all that. Um, and then they did some phone calls and then they were able to help me establish into like community housing or social housing. Um, they connected in and linked me in and they told me this really good news. Um, basically, when I was just like, around, I think I was like 19, when it was like 2013, I found a place um, in Bandura. Um, and I think, you know, at the time I didn't really know where Bundra, I haven't, I hadn't really been into the Northern suburbs of Melbourne before, so I was still quite new to it, but it was so great because I found somewhere to live. I feel like that's where the system did help, um, because they allowed priority housing for young people who were homeless. To what extent do you think that part of the problem was that there's just not enough housing stock for young people in need? Um, I think when it comes to housing, like... I just wish there were more funding. I mean, I praise Daniel Andrews for the recent announcements of the um, the the social housing investments and all that kind of stuff. But I just wish that there were more of that funding into like housing for young people, especially queer young people. A lot of I know, like a lot of my queer friends um, who I connect with, both through local and like around international abroad, they all comment about how they've had to can't they they haven't been able to leave live at home safely because of their queer identity um and because of it they've had to move out and often or not they have have to end up couch surfing and end up doing um a lot of things that they need they they wouldn't normally do to survive basically and i just wish that and i do hope that one day that you know eventually 
there will be more housing for young people, you know, especially queer young people, because I think queer young people have like a higher statistic um, of being um, of taking their lives than most other young people. It's incredible, isn't it, that people are able to transcend the barriers when there's just so many obstacles in their way. Yeah, I think you know. Um, I like I said before, I. I, I knew what trajectory I was on when I left home um, and I was going to make it my own identity to just be a different from who I grew up with um, and my, my family and who I was as a person at that current time. Um, I think a lot of young people are more resilient than people may think as well, um, especially given the adversities young queer people of colour may experience as well. You're listening to an interview with Reggie Chang from Fostering Connections on 3CRs in your face. It sounds like you would be a fantastic mentor for young people in out-of-home care. I believe so. Um, I currently work for the Centre for Excellence and Child Family Welfare with Deb Savaris, who actually acknowledges the work that I do in my advocacy in the out-of-home care sector. Um, I believe, you know, I've worked with other organisations like the Create Foundation, which actually advocates for the out-of-home care um, sector. And I think that, like, when it comes to the out-of-home care sector, it's not really well-known about, um, and I wish it was well more well-known, um, especially, like, foster care, um, residential care, that kind of stuff, like kinship carers. I think, you know, for for young people who are, you know, LGBT, I think having, like, a place where, like, a family they can go to who who is, like, a foster carer, who are LGBT is really important for their identity and for, like, a positive role model, I guess. What's the best advice you would give any listeners out there who are thinking about providing out-of-home care? I think, you know, um, out-of-home care is one of those, um, those experiences that you can't, you can't just buy, you can't just get with anything. I think being in a home care like supporter or a foster care support, like give, providing a, a home for a young person in foster care will provide you with like, tr- I guess, training, but it'll also give you an understanding of the young people um, who are less um, advantaged, like more like disadvantaged in the community. But especially if you are LGBT and you are queer, um, if you become a foster carer, you can play a pivotal role in creating a safe home for, I guess, an LGBT young person who may not have that support. Um, and I think that's the strongest part I want to play is that the LGBT community, um, I guess, you know, has a history of not being accepted by the community itself. By I, I mean, I was speaking to a person, Ian Seal, a while ago about how when he wanted to become a foster carer back in like the 80s or 90s, um, he was rejected by the organization. But as a, lot, a lot has changed over time. And I think given our current, you know, society's uh, role in like development-wise, I think LGBT carers are so crucial and critical in providing the most important care because we have been through adversity. And most of them not, we are diverse in many ways. So it sounds like the sector that provides out-of-home care has really transcended homophobia in lots of ways. I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Um, I think, you know, Fostering Connections, which is the organisation that's part of the centre, um, they are marching at Midsummer 
Um, and you know, I, I when I was like normally I'd march with Scouts Victoria um, as a scout leader for Midsummer, but I was invited by my 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 work to actually come march with them, and I thought that was really beautiful. There's actually a lot of things within internal stuff, like. Um, one of the staff members at my in my um my work um asked me uh like what my pronouns were and whether I'd be happy to use my pronouns in the my email signature and I think that was a big step like it to me like these small little things that organizations do can really make like being queer and non-binary like a, a lot more accepting absolutely it sounds like you're absolutely excited about pride march on the weekends it sounds like it's going to be a real buzz for you yeah, I, I'm really excited. <laughs> Reggie, it's been awesome chatting with you today on 3CR. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Reggie Chang there from Fostering Connections. And if you do need support, you can go to qlife.org.au or Lifeline on 13 11 14.
voice there of Maylene with Breathe. Join us to protest the forced evictions and ethnic cleansing in Palestine this Saturday, May 22nd at 1pm outside the State Library. Along with your signs and banners, please bring your masks and hand sanitizer to keep the rally COVID safe. For more information, head to Free Palestine Melbourne's Facebook page. A 3CR supporter.
Cold War kids there, Miracle Mile, you're on In Your Face on 3CR. Transvision vamp there, I want your love, I'm out of here. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. <laughs> 